Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Hope everyone is doing great out there. I'm excited to be in studio today because we've got a fantastic guest for you. His name is Dr. Glenn Siegel. He's from Haifa University. He's a specialist in Persian studies and he's going to be talking to us today about what is going on in the Persian Gulf. Uh, you know, we hear Iran and uh, what's going on with the Arab League and all sorts of things all the time. And it's good to have someone who really knows what that's all about in the studio. Glenn, welcome to Haifem. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me, Benji. I had an argument the other night with someone who was, let's say, more on the American left. And he said to me that Donald Trump has made the world a much less stable place and specifically withdrawing from the Iran deal has been the biggest mistake in American diplomacy ever. Uh, and and other members of the audience were saying, well, no, uh, that was a terrible deal, and now we're in a much better position. Um, w- what is your view of where we've gone since America has withdrawn from the deal and what it's meant for Iranian relations in the, in, in the region? Well, I'd say, first of all, that the former president prior to Trump, Obama, made a very big mistake by going into that deal. I think he felt pressurized that he had to have a deal, but he didn't look at the details of the deal. And the deal gave Iran everything and nobody else anything, really. So we knew very from the very first day with President Obama's deal. And in fact, um, there was a bit of a issue involved in terms of that because the way it was negotiated actually placed Iran in a position where it was the 90th minute where they could actually go to the very, very edge of developing nuclear weapons, of developing enriched uranium, of having long-range missiles, and nobody could actually prevent them. So it could be looking from this week to next week saying, ah, Iran is following everything to everything in the deal. However, next week they have the ability to go over it and we can't actually prevent them. Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, Prime Minister, realized this and from day one lobbied not to have such a deal. And he said, hold off, hold off for a better deal. But Obama, in his last days of his presidency, felt that he had to have some great event in history to put him in the history books, and this was peace with Iran, an arch enemy of everybody in the world. Unfortunately, this actually put Israel in a very precarious position. It's not just the nuclear deal, it's the missiles as well. And this has been a great issue for Israel over many, many, many years. Iran has been developing medium and long-range missiles, and has for many, many years putting them in Syria and now in Lebanon, which has been threatening Israel, just not with conventional means and not just with nuclear means. When President Trump came in, he realized not only was he from a different political party than his former President Obama, who was Democrat, uh, President Trump is Republicans. President Trump realized this just isn't the best of deals for everyone. Why? It's not just Israel. If the missiles are positioned in Lebanon, the missiles are positioned in Syria. This is, in fact, the Eastern Mediterranean. It is very, very close also to Greece, to Cyprus, to Italy, and, of course, to Turkey, all of which are NATO allies, and, indeed, the shipping in the Mediterranean. So he said, let's pull out. Let's get out of this deal. 
Let's put more pressure on Iran. The deal is just a paper tiger. What we want to do is make certain that it's not just the nuclear issue, but it's the missile issues. And he said, we're going to pull out right now. Iran, you can come back and negotiate a better deal for us. And Iran, of course, has realized what's going on and said, no, 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 no. Very sorry, it's this deal or no deal. And Trump said, well, it's no deal because this deal is a very, very bad deal, not only for Israel, but for NATO allies. And that's the kind of position we're in now. And we've actually realized, looking backwards, from the moment that Trump pulled out of the deal, just how false Iranian intentions are. Because the very first thing they did was begin to enrich uranium to a higher level, and they began to put very, very precise missiles into Lebanon, which resulted in Israel's strike last week to take them out. So Iranian now, tensions are definitely not good. Can, can I ask you, the, the biggest opponents of the pulling out of the deal have been the, the Europeans, I mean, in particular the Germans, uh, the French as well. If, if the Iranians are putting missiles ba- not almost within striking distance of their territories as well, how come the Europeans haven't seemed to have cottoned onto this earlier? The Europeans, traditionally, and I would say the current generation is the exact same, believe that so long as you're sitting around a negotiation table and talking, you have the ability to talk people into a better position. On the other hand, if you are breaking off any form of talks, getting somebody into that negotiation table is very hard. The two points of view is the Europeans believe if we're in the room together and we are talking, we can talk and maybe a next generation of Iranian leaders in that same negotiation table will be far more pacific. The American view, specifically of Trump, and in fact of the predecessor to Obama, President Bush and President Bush father, was if you put your head over the wall, we're going to shoot you. There's no issue about you yeah, of talking. We, the United States of America, are the global power. We decide, and we decide how things are done. Now, if you don't like that, you have to come to us, and it's on our terms. So the Europeans, specifically Germany, France, and to a lesser extent, the United Kingdom believe, well, a deal is a deal. We agreed to the deal. We have to keep up with our side of the deal. And once everybody's in that negotiation table, we can renegotiate the small details, such as, oh, the difference between 10% uranium, 20% uranium, uh, missiles of 100 kilometers or 200 kilometers. Um, You know, these are just small details, really. And, of course, there's a deterrence factor. Both France and the United Kingdom are nuclear powers. And they believe that that capability will, in fact, deter Iran from ever trying to strike them. I think it's a bit of a false idea that you can actually deter somebody who's not really rational. But you can, as France said, uh, since the days of de Gaulle, when they first acquired the nuclear missiles, we are actually just persuading ourselves rather than the other side. What do you make of some of the, let's call it, uh, Mullah apologists out there who are saying, look, you know, what the deal did was get the soft diplomacy into the door that uh, Iran is not a monolithic society, even even the Iranian structure of, of governance is not monolithic, and actually this this deal allowed the softer elements in there to actually take control, and they were 
uh, more likely to down the line be able to to sort of backpedal on on your on Iranian uh, ambition, and this has just supported the hardliners who are now. The view is that the original 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran were the hardest of the hardcore. And since then, society has moved forward, even though the leaders haven't moved forward. So the greatest possibility of change in Iran is already happening. There are street protests in the cold months. It is, as you mentioned, not a monolithic society. And the potential for a change of leadership will eventually happen with removing the hardcore people. There's also a view that the Shiite Muslims, which is a majority of the Muslims, a minority of the Muslims in the world, maybe only 10%, are actually the nicer kind. That is, the Sunnis, which are the 90%, for example, the Al-Qaeda crowd, the Islamic State crowd, which are the hardcore. So what we really have to do is get closer to the Shiite world, closer to the Iranian world, closer to the Iranian society. Iranian society is not to blame for their leadership's bellicose attitudes to the rest of the world. So the Mullah apologists are, well, it's just a few people up top there who are living the dream that they had in 1979 <coughs> of an Islamic Shiite world and are trying to project this around the world and are just more talk than action. And in reality, nothing will ever happen. So the Mullah apologists are really looking in terms of uh, well, it couldn't be that bad, really. And maybe in a few years' time, there'll be another revolution in Iran and the mullahs will be toppled. However, they don't look at the big picture. The big picture is the Quds revolutionary forces. It is the intention of the mullahs to actually operate worldwide. They have established madrasa throughout Africa to actually gather recruits to work in their combat situations. Hezbollah is operating with illegal arms trades, illegal dimes trade, recruiting people, even kidnapping people throughout Africa. And they have taken them to the Syria conflict over the last seven or eight years to fight the Sunni forces, as have Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. So Syria became a proxy war between the Sunni and Shiite. The Shiite was represented by Iran and the Sunni by Saudi Arabia. And Iran was actually using a lot of Africans in Syria to fight the Al-Qaeda forces there, which were also proxy coming out of Africa. So I think the Mullah apologists are living in a bit of a dream world that things are just going to be, you know, hunky-dory in a few years' time when society changes and when the Mullahs are overturned. I think we're in for a very, very bad period before we actually see change happening there. We're talking to Glenn Siegel today, uh, uh, expert in uh, Persian Gulf uh, studies and policy. We're going to be back just after the break. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. We're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review, talking today to Dr. Glenn Siegel from Haifa University. Glenn, let's move it more 
closer to home, shall we? I mean, you live in Haifa, which means that you're in rocket range. Uh, if something goes bad in the north, and we're seeing tensions in the north ratcheting up in a way that we maybe haven't seen for for quite some time. Uh, where to from here? What are we going to start to see in the next while um, on the northern border with Hezbollah, Syria, and, and those kind of forces? We now in a situation in Israel which is very, very close to the pre-1973 war. We are in the first time since 1973 in a situation where all the borders of Israel have a threat posed against the state of Israel and its citizens, and there is a imminent threat, uh, and there is a large amount of what we call attrition and psychological threats and dangers placed against the Israeli population. Although what you might see in the media is the constant uh, brewing conflict in the south, in the Gaza Strip with Hamas, slightly less so on the Sinai border all the way down to Eilat with the Islamic Jihad, which is operating in the Sinai. This is what we call very low-key, but it is attrition. People who live on the southern border day in and day out have to run for the bomb shelters with between 15 and 30 second warning. And the major issue there really is the lack of closeness or the failure of rapprochement between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. So there the real issue is the fact that the two Palestinian organizations are unable to come to an agreement. If they did, the peace process could move forward and Judea and Samaria, sometimes referred to as the West Bank and Gaza, could actually reach a very peaceful situation. In fact, Judea, Samaria, West Bank is very peaceful. That's the fact that Hamas does not recognize Israel. However, on the other hand, as you mentioned, in the northern border, this has always been the more dangerous border for Israel. This has always been the area where the Israeli army has felt the need to have a greater concentration of forces and a greater concentration of intelligence gathering. As we have seen the southern border, as I've mentioned, this was a peace treaty with Egypt. We've had a peace treaty with Jordan. So the South and the East have always been an area since 73 onwards where we've reached some sort of understanding with the neighbors. However, in the North, we have never managed to reach an agreement with Syria. And the major battles since 73, the last major war, have always been into Lebanon and into Syria. We were very, very lucky, actually, in 2011 when Syria erupted in the civil war. Uh, until 2011, we were in a position where we were being forced to reach a negotiation with Assad over the future of the Golan Heights. This was international pressure. Lebanon, since Yasser Arafat moved in in, in 1976, has been total disarray. It's a failed state with no governance. And on a number of occasions, we've actually had to go in to create buffer zones. Operation Litani, 77, Peace for Galilee, 82. And we were bogged down all the way until 2008 in terms of what was happening there with the PLO. When we withdrew in 2000 from Lebanon, southern Lebanon, between the Israeli border and the Litani, Hezbollah moved in. Hezbollah, the party of God, is supported by Iran. Iran saw this as an entire open vacuum and void to create a Shiite line from the Mediterranean 
all the way through to Iran. And this was actually reached fruition after the Syria civil war erupted in 2011, which was part of the Arab Spring. There was an attempt of the population there to remove the dictator Assad, as happened in Tunisia, as happened in Yemen. But what happened in the Syrian civil war, which was actually to our advantage, so long as forces are fighting each other anywhere on our borders, they're not fighting us, and they very rarely, if ever, uh, unite against us. So from 2011 to 2019, where we are today for the last eight years, we've actually had a very, very good time in terms of having a very peaceful border, uh, not being attacked with an odd occasion against military forces. However, what's happened now is the Syrian war, civil war is coming to an end. Shiite Islam, in terms of Iran, does have that continuum from the Mediterranean through to Iran, moving from west to east. Lebanon, southern Syria is actually controlled by Hezbollah, and obviously Assad is an Alawi Shiite being supported by, by Iran. And when the United States uh, removed the Islamic State in northern Iraq, eastern Syria, that created also a void for the Shiite to move in. So in fact, there's an entire logistical supply line and the population from the Mediterranean all the way to Iran are Shiite and support Iran. Over the last eight years, what has Iran done? It has tried to increase its support and its foothold in that area by increasing the amount of armaments, including missiles. Now, this has created great tension. For example, last year, Israel Air Force had had three, over 300 airstrikes against missile targets and Iranian targets in Lebanon and Syria, including all the way up into uh, the Damascus area. Uh, what we saw last week was uh, Iran trying to bring into Hezbollah precision-guided missiles. As you mentioned, I work in Haifa. I live slightly north in the city of Akko. We are in the 32nd zone. The city slightly north to me, Naharia, is in the immediate zone. That means essentially they have maybe one or two seconds after the launch of a missile before it hits. I have 30 seconds to run from wherever I am which sounds like a long time, unless, of course, you're sleeping. Uh, during the heights of uh, these tensions, we actually sleep with our clothes on because shoes on even. There's only one way you can actually run into a shelter, and that's when you're fully closed. You can't get dressed and then run. Some buildings are two or three stories uh, higher or above the bomb shelter. Uh, we are in the process and have been for many years of actually constructing uh, in-house shelters, even on buildings which are 20 or 30 stories high, you just build an, an annex or adjacent to it, which is a protective room. That's not really a bomb shelter, but it does protect you from shrapnel and shock waves, which is very, very important. So we're very, very tense in the northern border at the moment. And as opposed to the southern border or eastern border, we have no one to negotiate with. There is no one to talk to in Lebanon the government of Beirut it doesn't really exist. There is no one to talk to in southern Lebanon, which is controlled by Hezbollah. There's no one to talk to in Syria because that is run by Damascus and, of course, uh, the Russian forces, which control as a puppet Assad. And, of course, Iran is way beyond any means of us even communicating or sending a message to. So the northern border is very, very tense because it is a 100% military situation. 
and we are surrounded. We're the first time since 1973. All fronts are being attacked against Israel, and it also is a psychological war of attrition. The Israeli population every day has to be afraid of whether or not they're going to be attacked in the north or the south. Uh, we go through our daily routine pretty much ignoring it, but we do know, we do expect uh, virtually day by day there's going to be a radio broadcast that Israel has struck targets in Lebanon or Syria, or in fact the air raid warnings go off. We are preparing for it locally. Um, what was now once known as civil defense has been geared up. There are more local units and local preparation in order to uh, handle something which is Israel has never really had, and that is a missile strike against us. So we have Patriot missile batteries. We have the Iron Dome, the Kippad Bazel. But we know that even if 1% gets through, it's going to be devastating. Well, that's, that's what I wanted to ask you. You know, it's not as if Israel's never had wars with Lebanon before. There was one in the 80s and, of course, uh, in the early 2000s. And my sense is that the level of preparedness has gone up significantly on the Israeli side. Uh, because particularly in 2000, there were some issues with preparedness on that war. But my sense is, is that the other side is also, and it's almost as though uh, Hezbollah is not a terrorist organization anymore or, or just a militia. We're now going to be dealing the next war, if and when it comes, is is going to almost look like a more conventional war that we would have imagined and seen in in the, the, the 40s and the 60s and, and the 70s, in that you have trained people with proper armaments going up against an army. That's quite correct, Benji. One of the scenarios that we have to face, both in the south with Hamas on the Gaza border, as well as Hezbollah up north on the Syria and Lebanese border, is the potential for masses to cross the border. We have seen in the south, for example, over the last couple of years, attempts of massing up people on Friday at lunchtime on the Gaza-Israel border. We have built extra fortifications, extra fences to prevent that. However, in the north, one of the scenarios is that we might be faced with a 10,000-person Hezbollah invasion, and we would have to secede 10 to 20 kilometers of Israeli territory to absorb that and then retaliate backwards. It's just a matter of, in fact, once again, international pressure. If we see Hezbollah massing on the border, Hezbollah crossing the border, we have two options. One is to basically annihilate that force, but then we are really killing thousands, thousands of Hezbollah people in one swoop. And we don't think international pressure would accept the fact that we are basically bombing and killing thousands in one go. So one of the scenarios is an invasion by these forces. We'd have to absorb that and then retaliate and drive them back with minimal killing. This is one of the f problems of being a humanitarian country. We can't actually wage war the way war is supposed to be waged. But this is one scenario which we don't expect is going to be that bad because we'll have forewarning. We'll have forewarning when we see thousands massing on our border and we will take measures to try and defend and deter. The real problem is missiles. The real problem is rockets. If you're in a northern city like Nairia, which has only one or two seconds of warning, and a salvo of 3,000 rockets is fired, and 1% gets through, 
that means you might lose a certain amount of your Israeli population if it's, for example, strikes a, a hospital or a school and you don't have much warning. This is a major issue. We haven't faced such dangers since really since the 67 war. The 67 war, we were facing that from Jordanian artillery. That artillery shells could essentially, from where Ariel University currently is today, it's only 11 kilometers. Ariel University is in the Shomron. It was Jordanian territory. It is a hilltop overlooking Tel Aviv. And Jordanian artillery could have shelled and did in the 48 war from that hilltop straight into Tel Aviv. So what we are facing up north is exactly that situation of what we faced in 48 and 67. Very close, very massive intensive fire. And this is going to be coming from missiles and rockets. Not very accurate. And we've been trying to prevent the accuracy from being increased by Iranian supplies. If we have accurate precision-guided missiles, and both from the south and the north, this is what we're afraid of, and this is what is actually happening now. These weapons are going into possession. They could strike anywhere in Israel. We saw over the last uh, uh, conflict in Gaza that there were targets in the Tel Aviv area. Uh, Ben-Gurion Airport had to be closed down because there was potential of it hitting the runway. Up north, we have the major issues. In fact, that we have, for example, the oil refinery in Haifa. We have heavy industry up north as well. And any strikes that actually reach those areas will be devastating the economy. But we are developing more and more safeguarding measures, not just the Iron Dome. There is uh, David's Wand. Uh, there is the Patriot missile batteries. And, of course, we are aiming also to change the regime's by working with Russia. We have a developing very close working relationship with Putin uh, to try and move uh, things north more towards making sure that Assad is more concerned with his northern border, with the issue with the Kurds in Turkey, and take a focus away from the southern border. We've been very, very successful in keeping Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, living in an underground bunker for the last 11 years. And uh, he's very scared to put his head over the ground. This is the same with Hamas. The only reason why either Hamas or Hezbollah even attempt to threaten Israel is because it is inspired by Tehran, by Iran. Iran says, what are you doing? We'll give you more money if. And hence Hamas and Hezbollah wake up late in the morning and say, we have to do something. So we find at the end of the day, the vast majority, if not all, of our problems today are in fact coming out of the Ayatollah in Tehran. If we manage to get rid of him, then both Hamas and Hezbollah will be easy for the taking and we will have almost no danger. I think we'll also be able to get a rapprochement between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and move the peace process forward. So we're really, really looking at the bottom line of all our problem and all our threats is not local, it's not our neighbors, it's not the terrorist organizations surrounding us, it is in fact Tehran which is pulling the puppet strings to threaten us and to attack us on a daily basis. I think the most remarkable thing, actually, what you've said there, and maybe it's a, a sort of a good way to, to, to finish off the discussion, is how far Israel has come in terms of its... Uh, Arab and uh, <clears throat> even broader Islamic neighbors uh, in terms of the idea that 
there's not necessarily love in that country, those countries for the fact that Israel's there, but there's a certain amount of acceptance that it's not going anywhere. And, and the fact that the Iranians and, uh, well, of course, the, the Persian heritage and, and, the, and, the, and the Arab peoples see some of the similar threats now to, to, to Israel, it has actually meant that the neighborhood has gotten a bit safer and that everyone is at least underground working together about how do you counteract the threat. Correct, Benji. My enemy's enemy is my friend, is a traditional Middle East mantra. <laughs> and so long as Saudi Arabia and Iran are at loggerheads, we are getting closer to Saudi Arabia, which actually is our neighbor. If you go down to Elat in the south and you uh, look southwards to the left, you see Saudi Arabia. And if you look uh, rightwards uh, to the right, when you're looking southwards, you'll see Egypt. So Saudi Arabia actually is our neighbor. And uh, we've been very, very close to them since the days when Abraham's other son went into the desert, the, the 12 tribes of Ishmael. Uh, of course, uh, Shia Islam only came to uh, Iran in the year 1501, so it's very, very new there as well. Um, so yes, we are getting very, very close to uh, Saudi Arabia. As a consequence, we have developing relations with Persian Gulf uh, countries, uh, the Emirates, which are also at uh, loggerheads with Saudi Arabia in the Yemen conflict. We're getting better contacts with Qatar. They are, in fact, funding uh, Hamas to uh, bring about a, a development over there. So, yes, I mean, essentially what's happening in the Islamic world, whether it's Sunni or Shia, is that Israel is moving forward. We are getting a lot more and closer relationships uh, with uh, Arab countries as they are also moving westwards. Uh, a lot of the traditional die-hard Muslim countries are actually getting closer to Europe, are getting closer to the United States, and as their population is becoming more and more Western, they have realized, for example, that the oil can't last forever, that they have to get involved in international commerce and finance and trade. They've realized they have to also look for alternative energy means. They are looking for solar power. They're looking for wind power. And uh, a lot of the new leaders in these countries, uh, a lot of the younger generation, are in fact Western educated. They are going to top universities in the United States, in the United Kingdom. And uh, they are meeting Jews over there and realize that the Jew is not this uh, Zionist enemy and what have you. And I think this is very important to understand uh, from my own experience in the Muslim world as well as my own experience in uh, the Western world, in the European world is that the anti-Semitism in the world has really very much come from the Christian-orientated side. The pogroms, the Holocaust, uh, were not actually in any way related to Islam. The issue which uh, the Muslim world has against uh, Jews, against Israelis in specific, is very much territorial. The fact that we have the small piece of land which they want, which is in their, what they would call their sphere of influence. So it is not really a Jew-Muslim conflict. It is very much an Israeli-Zionist territorial Muslim conflict. And once uh, the new younger generation of Muslims accept the fact that territory is not that significant, commerce is more important, money is more important, they're not really keeping an eye out on the territory the way that they, the older generation did. So I think we actually have hope that we can have a state of Israel, that we can have Zionist ideology, and we can practice Judaism in our state of Israel 
with less and less threat from the majority of Muslims. However, on the other hand, we do have the greater issue of anti-Semitism in the rest of the world. And this is not territorial. This actually is very much in terms of, as we're seeing in South Africa today, a xenophobia of a kind of a foreigner, not exactly the same as me. But yes, we are getting very, very close to uh, our neighbors. And uh, the issue of religion is not there. It's always been an issue of territory. If people want to read what you've been writing, uh, get a sense of some of your work, where can they find it? I'll just do a, a keyword search on Google and uh, you'll pick up uh, hundreds of uh, articles, both uh, blogs, journal, uh, peer-reviewed academic, which is more in-depth, as well as some of my journalistic uh, endeavors. Yeah, and uh, I can say there's some, some really interesting stuff that uh, Glenn has been doing. Uh, on uh, if you're looking for stuff closer to home, he he's got a project on uh, Muslims in Africa, including some of uh, populations in South Africa and uh, uh, in in uh, the east and the, the north. And it's interesting. He'll, he'll, he also covers some of this the fact that uh, we have fighters from Africa pitching up in Syria, which I think is a something that people are not talking about. Uh, so if you want to go check out that sort of thing, Doctor Glenn Siegel, you can pick him up. Uh, Glenn, thank you so much for being with us on the radio and please enjoy the rest of your trip in here in South Africa. Thanks very much for having me, Benji.